I'm sort of slowly coming to the conclusion that maybe this whole Hertz buys a bunch of EV things uh, was uh, not a great business move. Uh, and it was also not really a, a, a boon for the uh, adoption of EVs more broadly. And that it was maybe just like a cynical a cynical stock pump. So I don't know. It might, might be a little controversial of a take. But, uh, but the good news is I'm basically paying like – now that I got my original quoted price, I'm paying like $14 a day for a Polestar 2. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. As always, I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association and the co-founder and principal of the finest consultancy in transportation, Johnson & Roy. And I'm Kirsten Korosek, a transportation editor with TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And uh, so I have, have, I have a question. Have you either of you rented an electric vehicle before? I'm kind of asking, asking for a friend here. What was that experience like, Alex? Wait, wait, Kirsten, Kirsten, did you did you uh, rent one? Yeah, actually, just recently, but it wasn't by uh, what's the word I'm looking for here. I didn't sign up for it intentionally, but ended up with one. Oh, wait, car rental companies will give you an EV without requesting one. Correct. Yeah, but I mean, I was fine with it because hey, like EVs are great, but I. I when I originally signed up, shall I tell my story really quickly? Yeah, please. Okay, so I was on a recent press drive and had to pick up a some sort of transportation for myself, so ended up renting a car through Hertz, and I had originally signed up through, you know, our company's travel services and just picked the p- cheapest one, which was not an EV. It was just your standard whatever. When I arrived, I was informed that I was going to have an EV, actually a Kia Nero. And that was fine. I drive EVs all the time. Great, but it's so. So it was fine for you because you drive EVs all the time. I've ha- I've heard from a number of people on social media over the last few days who had the exact same experience, and it was maybe a little less fine in some of those circumstances. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it just struck me. I always think of like my parents, let's say, um, or someone who's not super a big early adopter of EVs or even a middle-of-the-road adopter, medium-term adopter of EVs, how they would feel about this. And I always think of my dad, and I think that he would not be okay with it at all. Um, I think it would cause a lot of stress and confusion. And are EVs easy to drive? Sure. Is it Once you know what you're doing, is it easy to find charging stations? Yes, yes, it can be once you're experienced in that. But someone who's in an unfamiliar city suddenly have an EV and you have, let's say, a long road trip, um, you know, a multi-day trip, that could be a little difficult. Um, so I asked just out of curiosity, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So I asked if there was like a gas-powered version, like what if I didn't want this? And it was more expensive to rent the gas one more than I had signed up for. So the price I had been quoted was an EV price, but I wasn't told I was going to be an EV. Um, And then from there, I was told that I had to return it with 73% charge or I'd be charged. That's a very specific number. Yeah. I thought that was weird. Um, I think it was like, I don't know what that was all about. The one, the one thing I think they did correctly was as I left, and this is at SFO, you have to give all the paperwork. You know, they have all these barricades up before you can leave. 
And the woman there asked me probably five or six questions to make sure that I understood that this was an electric vehicle and then I had to return it with charge. And she was, and she was, you know, helpful. She's like, there's a charging station right, right around the corner. So she seemed pretty knowledgeable. She was the most knowledgeable person, but that's the last contact, right? Um, right before I left the airport. And I'm guessing it's because some people just didn't, don't understand what they're getting into. Well, I can tell you, and I want to hear Alex's story here, but uh, I can tell you that that, that particular person was not working the day I rented an EV at SFO uh, because I, I received zero education. But go ahead, Alex. No, no. I want to hear your story because honestly, I've, I've only ever rented EVs from Turo and I'm like a veteran um, EV driver. So I've never had a problem. So, but that's because I know. Edward, let's hear a, your your Odyssean tale. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's been, I'll try and keep it as, as quick as possible, but it's been a little bit of a a mind blower. So I, I wanted to rent an electric car. Well, I looked at, I, I, so like you, I looked for what was the cheapest one. And, and cause I was either going to have to like borrow from a friend I'm, and I'm house sitting, you know, in the Bay area for like almost two weeks. And so I'd have a base of operations and I realized, Oh, the cheap, it's really cheap to rent an electric car out of SFO. Um, uh, the, the cheapest, basically the cheapest rent I could find was, was an electric vehicle. Um, and so I thought that's great. I'm going to be at this, uh, you know, this house. I know there's an outlet where I could be able to, you know, plug in overnight. Uh, and it's perfect, right? Like I feel like getting an EV, the worst case scenario in a lot of ways is getting an EV for, you know, when you're not expecting one, when you're on like a road trip, that's going to be like sort of dynamic and stuff. And that wasn't the situation. I knew I was going to have a base of operations. And so I thought this is perfect. I'm going out once a, you know, every once a day, basically a trip at most. And, um, and otherwise just doing a lot of writing. And so, uh, well, lo and behold, um, I had kind of like two issues with, with renting an EV. First of all, I mean, the price was great, but, um, I got there and I was told when I was checking out that it was not an option to waive the damage wa- or, or to, to waive the damage coverage that essentially because I had selected an EV, I had to pay for damage coverage. And I was like, that's very strange because you quoted me one price and now you're telling me that to actually drive this vehicle away, I have to pay basically twice as much. And that's a bait and switch and it doesn't seem right. And the woman at the desk was sort of like, well, you know, it is what it is. And I was like, okay. And I'm, I'm, you know, people, listeners to the show may not believe this, but I'm actually a very non-confrontational person, especially when it comes to people in customer service positions. I really like to give them the benefit of the doubt and not make their lives harder than, than they have to be. And so I, I just accepted it, but, but decided to go when I got to my place to like, look into this. Right. So I get to the place and the first surprise, well, the second surprise hits me at that point, because there's, I open the trunk, I open the lid in the trunk and there's no charger. There is no way to charge this thing at the, you know, and I'd specifically, and again, I think, you know, the three of us all have enough experience with EVs to know, you know, what sort of scenarios they're better at than others. And and again, I specifically chose an EV because it was cheap and because it, it made sense for what I was going to need over the course of two weeks. But with the charger no longer there, like that kind of all completely changed. Furthermore, um, and, and yeah, I don't know if I should even name the, I mean, you, I'm sure. Yeah, please. Yes. Oh, yeah. Why? Okay. So, so I rented through, and and okay. So this is one of the first problems when you when you go online to find the cheapest car, uh, cheapest price on a rental car. In my experience, typically 
you get funneled. The sales funnel is like some kind of aggregator or some kind of service that doesn't actually operate. It's not the it's not the rental operator company, and so you they you know get you on a on a price, but then they don't tell you really anything about what an EV is or how it works or whatever. Um, and you don't even really find out who the who the operator is until basically like the day of. So it turns out it was dollar which was also then like a further front for Hertz. Like the vehicle was a Hertz vehicle. It had Hertz paperwork in it. It was on the, the Hertz level. Dollar is owned by Hertz. But it but so basically Dollar is like Hertz only there's no way to actually contact a human being. So so when I got home, you know, realized I couldn't plug in and and then I I, I researched and it turns out that um this SFO location in particular has gotten in trouble many, many times over the years for doing different versions of this basically high pressure slash fraudulent sales of insurance cover, of additional insurance covers. Because you only need so so back in the 70s, apparently, they would tell people at SFO that like the police are pulling over, like, welcome to California, you're not from here. The police will pull you over if you don't have this additional coverage. And they got sued and they had a permanent injunction from the with the uh, from the 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 state attorney general. Uh, a permanent injunction, and it was wild because the only way I had to resolve that, I found this out. I'm like, not only is this was this essentially fraudulent, but uh, you know, this is something that has gone on at this specific location of this specific, you know, rental agency for many, many. So that happened in the 70s. It happened again in the 2010s. And and the only thing that's new this time is that they're using EVs as an excuse to do the same old high high pressure and essentially just lying to customers. They're saying. If you rent an EV, and 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 so I go back there to to deal with this. Right now, I have to spend, I have to you know go and because I can't get anyone by the by phone. Like this this particular rental company does not offer any way to talk to anybody besides going back to SFO, going up to the gate. And I had two. I had a guy there basically stonewall me, uh, and and then treat me like I was being a, a jerk, and then. Uh, and then get the manager who then also tried to stonewall me and basically was like, you know, you signed an agreement. It's an agreement. And I said, the thing about contracts is that if one party is lying, that's not a valid contract. Like this is a very old legal question that has been settled pretty like definitively for a long time. Also, do you know what a permanent injunction is? Anyway, they refunded the money, uh, but also told me that there was no way for me to even spend more money on a charger. That's the irony. I went in there even having been defrauded and said, listen, if you could give me a home charger, I will pay money to have that capability. Nope, didn't even have it, wasn't even an option. So um, I'm sort of slowly coming to the conclusion that maybe this whole Hertz buys a bunch of EV things uh, was uh, not a great business move. Uh, and it was also not really a a, a, a boon for the uh, adoption of EVs <laughs> more broadly. And that it was maybe just like a cynical a cynical stock pump. So I don't know. It might, might be a little controversial of a take, but uh, but the good news is I'm basically paying like now that I got my original quoted price, I'm paying like fourteen dollars a day for a Polestar two, which is actually like not that bad. So so in a way, like it's kind of you know I got scammed, but I also kind of feel like they scammed themselves or something. I don't know. It's all very weird. <laughs> but I re- I imagine though I still go back to like this the average consumer. Um, most people have not been in an EV yeah, or, you know, at all, or let's say they've been in an EV, but they haven't, you know, gone, been in an EV in a town that is not their town and driving around potentially somewhat long distances, like from San Francisco where I was, 
you know, you can go to Napa Valley, you can go to many places for day, multiple day trips is a jumping off point. So, you know, I, I go back to that, like you were fighting this whole thing, like no consumer wants to deal with that. Even if at the end you kind of end up with a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I mean, yeah, I, I just, I, the, so, and, and I've never, like I've, I've driven an EV, right. But I've never rented an EV before. And so when the woman said like, I'm sorry, like because of the vehicle you chose, you have to get this coverage. Like I, you know, the, the, the entire rental agreement is, you know, 15 pages long or whatever. Like that. I didn't have even a copy of it in front of me. There was a line behind me. I was trying to keep, you know, I was trying to go along to get along. And I just, you know, and, and I think that that's, that is one way in which I might be like a normal consumer, right? Where, where, you know, even though I have experience with EVs, I don't have experience renting them before, uh, before. And so like, maybe there was some, you know, I, again, I, I kind of went along with it, um, because I was, was naive and, uh, well, I have question, Edward. Edward, did you consider renting from Turo? Listen, um, you, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I I don't think I'm going to probably and and so actually it's interesting. I know that so my partner who is a much more responsible person than I am has actually been banned from the Hertz fleet entirely because um she was double charged one time and she had the temerity to charge back one of the double charges and for that Hertz banned her from the fleet. And so I've already they're on thin ice with me anyway. If they will rent to me but not to her, they're obviously not a good company. <laughs> and this is like sort of the final straw. So I'm assuming that that I will probably be put on the do not rent list, but even if I'm not, uh, I have a hard time seeing myself going back. At least if I do, at least I have my eyes open. It will only be to get a super, super cheap EV that they're losing their shirts on. What is interesting is that, I mean, the car rental companies in general, not all of them, but most of them that rent EVs are are too like dumb or ignorant or, or to even – I mean, think about how the OEMs spent 10 years not paying attention to Tesla. The car rental companies are even slow, more glacial in their understanding of what the consumer experience is. But um, I will give props. Turo, if you go look at the Turo listings for EVs, Every listing will pretty much spell out whether or not it comes with accessories and the size of the battery and if it has unlimited supercharging, yada, yada. And so, you know, people complain sometimes about the peer to peer sharing networks, like rental networks, but that is one place where they really shine. Yeah. You know, I haven't rented a Toro in a really long time. I may, I may need to give them another shot um, because, uh, it's it's not it's not great out there. Again, I mean the 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 price you get for the money. It's funny too because literally the day that I rented, or it was the day before I rented, I, I, I got this Polestar two again for like fourteen dollars a day or whatever. <laughs> the news came out that Hertz is no longer going to be buying any Polestars because, uh, you know they're they can't they can't make money on it. So. Um, <laughs> In a way, in a way, we're kind of all miserable. The, the, whether we're the the private equity ghouls that are running this, you know, once proud corporation into the ground, or or us slobs who are trying to do business with them, like it just seems like everyone's kind of miserable. So, uh, a little bit of a, a story for our times. But but luckily, affordable EVs are are on the way, apparently, or something like that. Yeah, that's the new holy grail, right? The low cost EV. Um, you know, it's been, um. It's been an interesting adventure in the EV world. We saw the supersizing of EVs and a lot of focus on range. And the the product of that have all been huge, expensive EVs. We had the the Hummer and, you know, Rams hasn't come out yet, but the Ram is massive. Uh, 
we're seeing these big giant, even the Rivians are big and heavy. And now that conversation has shifted. Um, and I think propelled largely due to softening demand, not just for EVs, but a specific EV category, which is expensive, big EVs there that we've seen softening demand for. While Tesla has, I mean, if you look really deep in the data, yes, you can see there's some softening demand for Tesla in certain regions as well, but they are still continuing to sell EVs. And so now suddenly everyone's like, oh, the low cost EV, that's what we need to be doing here. Um, And there's been some discussions over the years about this, but now everyone seems to be talking about this, that and hybrids, um, which I find hilarious because I have long been a supporter of the Chevy Volt with a V. And I felt like it was very dumb of that GM to get rid of that vehicle altogether. They should continue, they should have continued it, um, but they didn't. But here we are. So Ford brought up the low cost EV, and actually even GM recently brought that up as well. So we're seeing, we're seeing this is the new buzzword, I guess, of twenty twenty four. And and what, yeah, it was interesting because Ford is they they. Bought a startup. I think you guys had the the were the first to report this over at TechCrunch, right? They bought a startup because yeah. it's one thing to say you're developing an, a, a a low cost EV, but then the question is how. And right. there's the the story is what they they bought the startup. Tell us tell us about that. So um, yeah, it goes back to actually two years ago. Secretly, Ford started this Skunk Works program, and Alan Clark, who's kind of like the head of Ford E, which is this unit that is, um, there's three units now of Ford, the way they report earnings, but he's the head of the advanced EV development. But he also was put in charge to lead the Skunk Works team based in Irvine, California. Um, The interesting piece here is that in November, uh, the Ford bought a company called Amp, and the founder of that company and Alan Clark used to work together at Tesla. So Alan had been at Tesla for 12 years or so and just came over to Ford two years ago. And so now his old former coworker, um, I believe they overlapped for about five years. And many of the AMP folks are all part of this Skunk Works team. And their purview or their charge is you know, looking into technologies around the battery and other things to develop a low-cost EV. So Farley, uh, Ford CEO Jim Farley, did mention briefly a Skunk Works program during the earnings call this week, um, but TechCrunch rooted out like where it was based and um, who was leading it and, you know, how it was how it was attached to AMP. So is this a $25,000 car? Is that is that the the goal? I think that's, I think that's the unsaid number, right? Inflation um, adjusted. Yeah. I mean, hey, I'd be happy with the if we could get like a great EV for 35,000. Like, I know everyone keeps saying this 25,000. It, it's reminiscent of, you know, Robotaxis will all be commercially launched by, you know, 2022. It's like, let's just be real about the number here. The average price of an EV last time I checked, a new EV it was 55,000. And that's and that's down considerably as as folks have cut their prices in order to keep the volume up. It was it was in 21 or so it was in the 60s it was in the low 60s. Right. Okay. So or 22 something like that. Wait, wait, right. And so did, is there any information on when this is going to come out and combined with that cuz Kirsten you're the credible journalist here. Uh 
do didn't wasn't some noise made recently by Tesla about the next gen affordable EV? Don't say a word, Edward. Kirsten? Yes. I mean, so there there's been a lot of talk about the low cost EV. That's why I was saying it's kind of the buzzword. Tesla's been floating this. They floated the number twenty five thousand. We'll see if anyone could match it. To be clear on the Ford effort, this is their Gen 3 product. We're still waiting for their Gen 2 product. So the Gen 2 product is the T3 electric truck and the three-row SUV, and that is supposed to go into production in 2025. This is really future product. So the EVs that Ford has on the road today, um, in an effort to get to market quickly, did they did not do a whole brand new electric architecture and platform? It was essentially like this is the Ford F one fifty and the Mustang Mach E. It was built on existing technology that they had, with the intent of a next gen platform, ground up type of thing. Um, that's the second gen. What the Skunk Works is working on is future. So what does that mean? We don't have a timeline. Does this? It could go to a couple of ways. It could be. Some of that technology creeps into the it, it creeps into this next gen, or it's actually totally futuristic, you know, down the road. And so it's like, how long do we have to wait for a, a low cost EV? Well, definitely longer than twenty twenty five, apparently. So let me let me just read like Jim Farley's words from from this TechCrunch piece here because I think there's a, there's two things I want to highlight. So it says that uh, it was a startup, it was separate from the mother Ford mothership. Uh, developed, they've developed a flexible platform that will not only de- deploy to several types of vehicles. There will be a large install base for software and services that we're now seeing at Pro, the company's commercial unit. So that's interesting to me. And and you know, if you look at at the the EVs that Ford Pro sells right now, they already have much lower ranges than what they're selling to consumers. And so. That might be interesting. This might be more of a commercially focused. It, clearly, commercial vehicles are part of this, which makes sense for smaller batteries because businesses are more rational about the range that they need versus the range they think they need. Um, that right. c- what consumers get hung up on. So I think I think it sounds like at least part of this is 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 targeting the commercial space, which to me is really interesting. That that makes sense to me, both given the the challenges around the technology, but then also just sort of Ford's presence in that commercial space and the fact that it's fascinatingly. They've done a much better job sort of turning vehicles into these software and services platforms in the commercial space than they have in the consumer-facing space. Well, and it, it makes sense in a lot of ways because if you have – with commercial vehicles, it's generally planned routes. So it's all baked in from and, – and if you have a good, uh, let's say, Ford representative at a dealer, the commercial Ford Pro, um, helping these customers really understand what they need um, – it's all baked in. And so the what companies want, small businesses in particular, but even all the way up to the largest companies, they want certainty. And so uh, around everything that they do, and including buying an EV. And Ford Pro, unlike Ford E, which is the all-electric unit of Ford, is profitable and growing. So uh, the way earnings was reported, Ford's um, gas and hybrid um, division made the most money. I think it was like something like in the fourth quarter, something like twenty six billion, showing some growth. Ford Pro grew eleven percent and is profitable and is and is bringing in the second highest revenue. So you can see why a company would want to continue that pace, right? And help prop up, by the way, the unprofitable business, which right now is the consumer 
all electric business. Yeah. So the other thing that he mentioned that I wanted to just just mention, he so he mentioned Alex the 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 low cost Tesla, which has been talked about forever. I mean, whatever. I you know I I it's going to be a game changer, Ed, mm-hmm. and I'll be the first guy to buy one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also uh, mentioned you know Chinese competition, and I think that's a much more plausible thing to worry about if you look at BYD versus Tesla, not just culturally in some abstract way, but actually in terms of getting vehicles on the road, like BYD is killing it in lower cost EVs, um, as are other other players in the Chinese space, uh, whereas Tesla has really done nothing but talk about about pushing forward the cost, uh, you know, sort of frontier on on this technology. Um, and so so I think that's really interesting. But but what's also interesting about that to me is when I, you know, when I hear of a company like Ford, which is not the biggest automaker out there, um, you know, talking about getting into doing something really hard. Like I, I feel like doing a low cost EV thing is, is a really hard thing to do. And in the past, like when we've seen really low cost EVs, so Alex, you remember when we drove the Renault Quid across India, you know, that car got turned into a really low cost EV, which now I think sells quite well in Europe and elsewhere. Um, but they had to partner with Chinese partners to do that. What's interesting is Ford is, is it, it, to me, that seems like the biggest gauntlet that's being thrown down here is sort of like, this is going to be an American EV, like affordable EV. And I think that's interesting because it makes sense. Like if, 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 if you were running a car company and you just really want to get this to market, the easiest way to do it w- would be to partner with a Chinese player, right? Or even rebadge BYD or get BYD to supply battery. Like there's, you know, tapping into that, that the, the industry that they've built there is the way to do it. Ford is definitely not doing that, which makes sense because they don't have a ton of ties in China. But I think it might play be interesting as as the sort of geopolitical issues around EV supply chain and 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 EV competitiveness. Uh, I think will continue to sort of be an issue going forward. So Ford, um, Farley said some other interesting things. Actually, Ford and um, Farley and a, and a couple of other executives on the earnings call that also seems to be a pursuit of GMs, which. You know, in this rush to go to um, an all electric portfolio, which now they've kind of backed off of a little bit, um, they are continuing to invest, but they seem very interested in really looking at the the answer is down at the battery, the the low cost EV. The answer is the battery, including in how they vertically integrate things, how they what kind of chemistries they're looking at, and and this is a risk, right? Because it takes a long time to bring you know new chemistries into the marketplace, but and so we don't really know exactly how it's all going to shake out. But what I am seeing is. Not necessarily companies saying, hey, we're going to back off these major suppliers, you know, like the LGs and Panasonics of the world, but trying to take a little bit more ownership and maybe lessen the reliance, um, you know, internally of finding the best technologies for their purposes um, instead of just defaulting to the supplier's knowledge. That seems to be what is the shift. And we're seeing that actually with the announcement this week at GM. As well, which is uh, Kurt Kelty coming over, um, very well known in the battery world, uh, had been at Tesla through the first four vehicles, and Panasonic. most recently was, yep, was at Panasonic, and most recently was at Sela Nano, which is which is a really interesting um, battery startup. Now coming over to GM to oversee its sort of like the. The one person who's going to string string together all of the different components and pieces of the battery, and um, so 
I think that that is tied to, you know, my previous comments, which is this effort and desire to find efficiencies and lower costs through the battery. But without just, without just depending on suppliers, partners. Correct. I think that that, I don't, by the way, I'm, I'm not suggesting that GM or Ford are going to like divorce their partners by any stretch, but I think that they're in many ways have been, have defaulted um, the expertise to the suppliers. And I think that there is a desire to, you know, capture some of that expertise back and control a little bit more of what happens. I'm only going to say one thing. It's it's like from 14 minutes ago of Ed's commentary, Chinese EVs will never become a serious player in the US EV market. Never. That's quite the bold. Yeah. There was a time same, when people said more. that about Japanese and Korean automakers. I mean, the Polestar Two is a very nice, very nice vehicle that I'm driving right now. I don't. I'm. I'm confused why you think that can't succeed it, on the market. The Polestar might, but like a BYD or any other brand, like Chinese brands, no. So, it's, so, it's oh, oh, so you're saying you're saying a Chinese EV could succeed if it were rebranded, if it, if it came in under. So, if GM imported Chinese EVs, I mean, because that's right. That's what Volvo is. Is doing it's all G. It's all G. That's, right? possi- that's possible, but there, something something very bad is going to happen at some point. That's going to change the global political stage. At which point, I mean, China's already been cast as you know the bad actor via the United States. If the Republican, if, if Trump is elected and tariffs come in, this is going to affect everything. Uh, and we haven't spent a whole episode on this, and probably bringing Michael Dunn to discuss it, but. There's just no way that's going to happen. So that has that buys some time, but it, for American you know, OEMs, they still need to have real leadership. And I mean, GM. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Alex, can you? I mean, <laughs> I, like I, I definitely see what you're what you're saying, and and I do definitely think. And I, again, I think that's part of what Ford is doing here, right? Is Ford is saying, and I, I think it's less. That like it's hedging geopolitical risk in my view, and, and I'm just kind of going with the guy here, and more about lining up like like the Biden administration is has really made it a priority to invest in U.S. based supply chain for EVs, right? And the the um, the IRA has been a super game changer. We're seeing companies reincorporate in the U.S. Like all kinds of things are changing in order to this really changing like basic aspects of of, of parts of the of the EV business. Um, so I think to me, that's what I kind of smell here. It's like Ford probably knows it, it's very, very difficult for a company of their size, you know, without a, a, a you know major Chinese partner the way other companies have to to really on their own do this. But I think by positioning their low cost EV effort as a 100% American effort, you know, a U.S. Skunks work, skunk works in Southern California. Like there's a lot of resonance with like U.S. history, military industrial complex, all kinds of other things. I think it's more about lining up for for future, you know, rounds of subsidies than than necessarily hedging against a geopolitical, like a like a, like a war happening or something like that. But either way, I mean, it, it kind of accomplishes both, right? Yeah. And I, and I say, I would say like the cynical side of me also, there's nothing as attractive, uh, as the word skunk works and low cost EV and tech to get the the shareholders like you know excited and so I, I do think that using that word and I and I thought about that as I was actually writing this story like strategically using that word skunk works um, but the fact of the matter is is that they have been working on this quietly you know in the background and certainly not 
uh, talking about it publicly for the past two years. So it does qualify as as that as a Skunk Works team. But I, I do think I did it did cross my mind a little bit that like how much of this is related to you know boosting the stock price. But their earnings they beat they beat they beat analyst estimates, and so they they were rewarded for that anyway. So I don't know if that really was um, the main driver. But it is a sexy term to use, right? Yeah, and, and we have AV stuff to talk about in in our limited time. But I want to I want to pick Alex's geopolitical mind about about one sort of hypothetical here, really quick before we move on. Uh, so so China, right? Like they developed well, their initial strategy to develop their their auto industry was to invite you know foreign established automakers to come and 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 basically traded access to their market for partnering with local firms and co-producing producing in joint ventures. And that's actually not that different than well, it is different than sort of how we approached the US uh, the Japanese automakers, but like it, you know in the 80s we had these like, you know, import limits and that sort of nudged them to there was like currency issues that really kind of helped bring them here as well. But I, okay, so my question is do you see that strategy working, you know, of us basically turning China's strategy back on them. So, so basically, you want access to the U.S. market to the U.S. consumer. Fine, you as a Chinese company can come here, but you have to partner with an established U.S. firm and 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 manufacture in the U.S. as a joint venture in order to sell to the U.S. Do you, do you see that working, or is there like a wrinkle to that strategy that that I'm not? I'm not thinking through, or, or do we need to discuss this on a future episode? <laughs> I think it's a whole nother episode, but I mean, just think about the pool of people who want to like the, the buy an EV in this country. Okay. It's a subset of the market. It's a minority. And it, it, whether I mean, some people say it's so, the, the sales are softening, whatever, but they're, what are they buying? Like, what are they actually buying? Uh, they're buying Tesla's and Hyundai's and Kia's. Aren't those the dominant? EV brands in the United States? Yeah. So I actually just saw a really okay. interesting chart that, that shows that the EVs sell when they're new, like the turnover in EV, like anyway, but, but yeah, go ahead. So, so imagine that there is like any conflict, even a, a trade war, like literally anything, the Republicans, they get a fair in office, the Trump is elected. China's going to be painted as like number one enemy and no American is going to want to touch a Chinese brand. And I think that will taint any partnerships, even under a U.S. brand that come in. And that's not even count getting to like the privacy issue, which again, I, I'm not concerned about privacy in cars in general. However, culturally, Americans gonna American, and so between political, you know, perceptions of China and fear of privacy, I just can't. I just can't see this playing out well. Now, what it does mean is that if an American OEM like Ford executes an EV strategy correctly, that they can dwarf a, a GM, which is you know been operating in fits and starts. Okay, real quick. So uh, Americans' uh, thoughts around privacy, I find is fascinating because actually Americans could give a crap about privacy unless <laughs> it's the Chinese. Because other than almost any other citizen on the planet happily give away their privacy and have totally rejected ideas around protecting privacy like Europe, which actually does. Tesla, Tesla being actually a pretty good example of this, actually. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and so, yes, when it comes to Chinese company potentially spying us, everyone gets riled up. But generally speaking... Uh, people seem very happy to give away all of their information. Um, one one last thought on this before we move on, though. Um, I do think that there is 
certainly evidence already um, that shows that Chinese automakers can greatly affect U.S. automakers, not necessarily by coming into the U.S., but by capturing market share in very every other place in the world, specifically Mexico and South America um, Europe. and Europe. Yeah. And so um, now that has been, I think they're going to meet some resistance in Europe, but we already see uh, Motor Trend had a great whole documentary series about Chinese automakers coming into Mexico and setting up shop there. And so I think there's- Motor Trend. Yeah. Yeah, I, don't I know. know. I don't know her. Our, our friend Christine, Christine yeah, Lee Chris, had, did she's a piece good. on it. And she, it was great. We love she's her. I, did, I, did, I did not know she's at Motor Trend. My apologies. Yeah, yeah. Yes. She's, but, she's um, a bright light over there. Yes. Um, but the point is, is that uh, there are ways to, um, let's say, create a threat to U.S. automakers and make them even more reliant on the U.S. consumer than ever before by capturing more market share in other markets, meaning they have to be successful in the U.S. because they have less market share elsewhere. So anyway, I just want to make that final point um, before we move on to AVs, our favorite well, topic over here. Yeah. Unless you really like, want to close things. No, I mean, we, oh. we should at least address it. It's been a, a, a couple couple of little rough news items for the, the AV sector in, in San Francisco, again, specifically, once again, the battle of – Yep. Of San Francisco rages on, um, and so Kirsten, yeah. you you've been you followed the the aftermath of the cruise situation. You watched the hearing uh, uh, that that got some news. Uh, tell us about that. All right, so well, I got yeah. So I guess we'll start with cruise. Um, so there was a there was a settlement proposal. Is this? I'm going to skip over all the legal complications, but there was a su- settlement proposal that was rejected on technical legal terms, not the contents of it. And so it was resubmitted and the CPUC is um, reviewing that. And so this isn't just like all the commissioners, this is actually a judge that reviews the settlement. And so the hearing, which was uh, I called into, was really the judge asking a bunch of questions to um, folks over at GM and Cruz. And I would say that um, it was mostly old information, um, not a ton of new information, a lot of clarifications and things like that. But um, one of the pieces that was picked up was that, you know, GM slash cruise is willing to double the settlement offer. And the settlement (laughs) offer originally had been $75,000 and the (laughs) The most under this, and this is all statutory, right? So this isn't like, this is based on a very specific violation of a very specific statute. And the top fine is $112,000 or something like that. Um, And and to be clear, this is a a settlement with CPUC or with the city, not with the, not with the the victim. This is just CPUC CPUC. and it's just Uh very specifically about this one statute violation, right? So that's what they got nailed for. There are many, many other things going on here that surely will result in larger fines. And in fact, you know, that point was made during the hearing. Um, This was cast as, you know, offering to double it. I would say if you listen to the verbiage, Craig Glidden, I believe was the one who was, who was speaking and he's GM's um, executive vice president of legal and policy and a cruise board member. He was the one who was just brought on um, in December as the chief administrative officer at cruise. 
it was a very conciliatory tone that he had throughout this hearing. And basically, he verbally said, listen, if it's going to get us across the finish line to like go to the upper, we'd be fine with that. He didn't formally propose in the written settlement, we will go to this. I believe he was trying to strike um, or to show or display, listen, we want to correct this. We'll do whatever it takes to correct this. Um, and so I, it wasn't a formal. Now, whether the language is changed in the settlement agreement, I haven't seen that yet. But this was during the hearing. And so basically, this, a bunch of questions were asked. Um, we're going to now have to wait for the agreement to be um, accepted or not and see what has changed. To me, a lot of folks have focused on the fine. There is a more interesting component around the data sharing. Yeah, because And we could probably have a whole show around the data sharing piece of it. Um, but basically, uh, this would be, they would adopt these new data reporting, they call them enhancements. Um, and, and part of the idea is that they would provide these without being asked for them. So oh. that was, uh, that was um, one of the things that came up, which is, well, how is this new? And um, it's like, well, you can ask for this information now, but this would be just given freely instead of, you know, after the fact. Your money or your data? No, I mean it, it is funny the the focus on the fine because seventy five thousand or seventy thousand versus one hundred and fifty thousand or or even three hundred thousand, right? Like like to a company like GM, like these are meaningless distinctions, right? Like a $70,000 fine and a, and a, and a $150,000 fine and a $5 fine might as well all be the same, right? Like it's, it's so, I mean, I'm glad like, like the conciliatory tone is important. I agree. I think the data sharing piece is interesting. It does a little bit fly in the face of like some of the rhetoric about like, when we go into cities, you know, we work with the, you know, we try and be transparent with our public sector partners sort of rhetoric, but, um, but Hey, you know, if it takes, squishing someone to get <laughs> to get their rhetoric and their actions to align. I, yeah. I mean, I will say that they were definitely trying to strike a very uh, humble up, you know, they were taking, they were taking the, we fucked up approach. We were totally wrong. And they many times in fact would interject and say, just to be clear, we were wrong in this. Um, and, and, you know, it was, it was the, it was the classic mea culpa, like, you know, it's strategic, of course. Um, and one of the things that they said, which was one point I would absolutely agree with, which is obviously where our actions are going to be more important here, um, than anything we say. Uh, but of course, then that means seeing what happens. Kirsten, uh, it does sound has, like they're going to do a very slow rollback. You know, it, it doesn't seem like they're trying to um, get through this to um, quickly get back on the road. And then there was one other point before I um, turn it over to you, Alex. They did go in detail around the video, the clip of the video. And what I thought was interesting is this, is there's been a lot of discussion about did they – purposely cut the video um, prior to sharing it. And one piece of information that I didn't see in the Quinn Emanuel report, but it must be in there. It's a, you know, a 195 pages, so it's possible it's in there, is that the, the vehicle is programmed 
if there is an incident to capture 14 seconds of video. That's it. So what happened was initially this video was then viewed and it wasn't until then the team went back and captured more information that this, so at midnight or whatever, people who knew there was really like they say only one contractor who was on the ground, like taking photos and stuff who put together, uh, looks like someone with this person was dragged, but when they were looking at the data, there was no indication of that. It was the person on the ground who, who kind of set that up. And so it seems like what happened was initially they didn't know and they should have like they should have, they should be capturing way more video like immediately um, but when certain decisions were made and then around midnight, they didn't. And then as the hours progressed, then they learned. And then to me, then, it, then they just dug themselves into a massive hole because they didn't correct the record at all um, with, with the media. Um, and, and then of course there's the whole separate issue of when they were showing the video to regulators and this whole question about interconnectivity and like all this other bullshit. Um, but I did think it was interesting that the car is programmed only to capture 14 seconds. Yeah, so, and so I that, oh, this is not a visual media. So you haven't seen Alex has been making faces for the last like two minutes that Kirsten's been talking. Alex, you gotta you gotta weigh in on this. I, my head is exploding as you're, you're, you're saying these things. That doesn't make any sense. They're capturing all the data. Let me be clear, and they're capturing all the, all the video. But that it's the initial clip that's captured and sent to like people See, who are watching the, it. So, so the they can capture clip, more. Uh-huh. Yeah. The initial clip is 14 seconds. So they can, and they did go back and look, look forward, right? They captured more, but the initial like program amount only, of time. Wait, so they can only send from the car 14 seconds. Well, I don't know if it, they can only like send, but that's the con. It's an automatic. Yeah, it's an automatic report. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. It's an <laughs> automatically generated report. But still, like the idea that in an incident like that, that you wouldn't get the facts before, like, like that you wouldn't be able to access the data. I don't know. Like for me, again, like the like the tension here is between. On the one hand, they say they say this is the deal, and it's like okay, we kind of have to take your word for it. But on the other hand, you know, you have all of this rhetoric about these vehicles have superhuman perception, right? Like Kyle Kavok used that term over and over and over and over and over again, and it's like. You you know it at, has at superhuman point, perception unless of course you're trapped under the vehicle. Yeah, no. Well, okay, but like I, I'm saying, like no, I, know, I'm making you, a when joke. You tell investors that you have, your vehicles have like this insane superhuman thing. It's like the key to superhuman perception. It's the key to making them so safe and all this stuff. But then, but then you know when when something bad happens, you're like, well, like that we only had this 14 second video clip, but like like. The, it's the it's the it's the tension between your different stories that's the issue, right? No, and I was, by the way, being I was being sardonic. Um, yeah. You know, it's one thing to say we have superhuman, you know, abilities, except for a very basic one like uh, we can't see under the vehicle, and that was reiterated again as well. They were asked specifically, like, do you have sensors for anything under the vehicle? This it would seem like a, a something that you would need. Um, they the also report- talked about. Didn't the report yeah. also state that one of the side cameras saw legs? Yeah. So what they did, that one thing that was, I don't know if it, I guess you could call it a clarification. They were asked about this 
and that the vehicle incorrectly logged this as a side impact. So then as a result, like just didn't, um, not only are there not sensors underneath the vehicle, but then because it was had categorized, categorized it as a side impact, it didn't even like consider that it could be something also that was underneath. So anyway, these separately are issues, but brought all together, make a big ass problem. Um, you know, and I think that a lot of the coverage and the debate has been about, of course, the, the quote unquote cover up or the, the inability to act correctly. And a lot of it was around this combative relationship that Cruz had with the media and just being so hyper-focused on correcting the record that they weren't the initial car to hit the vehicle that hit the person. They became so obsessed with that. It basically clouded all of their judgment to me. However, what is far more interesting is the, the actual technology and why, while yes, you do have to have a minimal risk maneuver, a minimal risk maneuver should actually um, not involve running back someone to, over. That's not minimum risk. Yeah, there's so some risk there. It's there not. It's it's not enough to car. say. How do, you, how do you know it's not minimal risk if you don't know that there's not someone underneath? Right. Your car? Exactly. And so I think a lot of people have pointed to it and say, "Oh, well, minimal risk is to pull over," and it's like. Except for when it's not good to pull over. And and I wish that there had been a little bit more focus on that. But hey, we actually do also have to talk about Waymo, you guys. Yeah. So Waymo was in a – I think this is the first time they've hit a cyclist. Um, yes. And it was mi- relatively minor injuries, I think, but it but they hit the cyclist. Like up, up to they this point – They hit the cyclist. Think, Wait, hold on a and minute. We could, talk, we could talk all day long about the circumstances of it, um, but the the – which is that – the cyclist was basically following the truck as it went through a four-way stop, which many cyclists do, by the way, because it's the flow of traffic. And we could argue that they shouldn't have done that. But point is, is that in today's urban environment, cyclists do that. It's part of keeping the flow of traffic going. And so you're not waiting just for a bicyclist. You kind of quickly go right behind a vehicle and go along with the flow of traffic. The Waymo... um accelerated through the four-way stop, hit the brakes, did not have the brakes in time, hit the cyclist. Cyclist had a few scratches. They they didn't go, they didn't seek any medical treatment. They got back on their bike, I guess, and went along. Um, but it happened. Um, Waymo had like the dumbest jargon in their statement um, of all time, uncluded, included, which yeah. is like very lawyerly Occluded versus unoccluded. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. Also too, I have to just point out in the, in this, you know, fair, you know, treating them fairly with crews. I happened to be looking through their YouTube account, Waymo's YouTube account just yesterday, uh, totally unrelated to this. I was, I was looking for completely unrelated reasons. Um, but one of the videos they have, it's, it's an older one from Phoenix and uh, the previous generation uh, of hardware. Um, but, uh, it specifically showed it was a different scenario too, but it was a, a it was a short clip showing them safely responding to a cyclist that came out from that was occluded by a truck and that came out and they saw so like so again there is you know and it, this is I think not even remotely comparable to the cruise situation it's still not good um, although it is also the kind of thing that is going to happen um, again like there's no doubt about it but again like I think it's just you know there's this tension between showing off what your system can do and then 
you know, that, that suddenly doesn't look so great when you have a crash that, that sort of you've implied that your technology is, was going to avoid that kind of specific thing. Again, they weren't the same. It was a different scenario involving yeah, but you included by a truck, but they were similar enough. Yeah. So it just right. doesn't show how hard, have, how hard comms is around this stuff. Yeah. You can have two truths, which is you can have Cruz and Waymo both fucking up at different levels. And I would say to your point, absolutely. If any startup or anyone working on AVs has anything to learn from this, which is in the um, push to tout all the capabilities and win people over, they better be spot on. And Waymo has taken... Um, a lot of efforts around talking about bicyclists, including as you get out of the car, they have a warning light um, with the door, you know, the door opening that, hey, a bicyclist is approaching. They've talked a lot about this. And yeah. so we, I think Alex should have the last word on it. But, you know, well, I, again, I just wanted, don't tell things that you can't support. Well, I just wanted to say, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to be riding Waymos in San Francisco. I'm curious to see if they're going to, if they've dialed back. Because last time I was here, they were really brisk pulling away from stops and and stoplights and stop signs. I wonder if they dial that back a little bit in response to this, or a little less aggressive on the on the accelerator, um, because it seems like that may have been a factor here. Anyway, Alex, last word. We don't have enough information about this one to really have, say much. Um, but look. Fundamentally, vehicles move, human-driven or autonomous, collisions will occur. The only question is whether the company has, before the event, actually earned enough goodwill and trust from the community to survive the uh, comments from the folks who just don't want to believe this is ever possible, ever. So Cruz did not have that, that context. They, have no, they had no trust to lose. So that's why they're in the pickle they're in. Waymo's done a better job. And certainly in Phoenix, you know, I ride Waymo's all the time and people around here take it for granted that that's just, they exist. So, uh, but I'll wait and see uh, about this event before I, I have an opinion. Anyway, that was a fantastically feisty episode of the Autonicast, my friends. Kirsten, you want to leave yeah, us a little out? heavy, a little heavy on the EVs. I know all the AV people get a little annoyed by that when that happens, but electrification is part of it. So... Um, thank you, Alex and Ed, for joining me. And thanks to our audience for listening to another episode of the Atonicast. <laughs>